I begin with the quote that's in your order of service from Meister Eckhart. The most important prayer in the world is just two words. Thank you. One day, a clergy friend of mine shared a conversation that's common among Unitarian Universalists. He said that one of his most engaged parents was frustrated with an encounter that her 12-year-old son had in the school lunchroom. Her son was asked by his fundamentalist Christian friends in the school lunchroom, what do the people in your church believe? The boy, a very bright kid, was left murmuring something about freedom and believing what you want, and this answer not only failed to impress the boy's friends, it left the boy confused and annoyed that he could not express his faith powerfully and succinctly. And the boy was left wondering why they went to church at all. Now, my clergy colleague shared that he was able to help the boy find a way to express his faith. And hopefully that boy will be ready to defend himself and our faith the next time that someone confronts him with such a scenario. But this got me to thinking, how are we helping members and friends, the young and the not so young, to proclaim their faith, whether it's in the lunchroom or the pub, on the ball field or on the subway? The truth is Unitarian Universalists are very comfortable telling their exodus stories of how we left a former religious community that we found abusive or too full of superstition. But we have not been as excited in telling our Genesis stories, the tales of how we have discovered our religious community, how its beauty and wonder have moved us to tears of joy and gratitude. The boy in the lunchroom was partially correct. Here we practice and affirm freedom. But freedom is a condition for democratic living. It's a prerequisite for a free faith and for discovering what we should believe. But freedom is not a belief. Freedom does not ground us. It allows us to seek what grounds us and to embrace it. So I began to reflect about this boy in the lunchroom. And I recalled in answer to his concern. And this was the article I read from. It was uh, from 2007, the UU World, and the article's titled The Heart of Our Faith. Galen Gingrich claims that Unitarian Universalism has a powerful core, and we just need to proclaim it, and that core is gratitude. Now, many faiths can be boiled down to simple statements. Christianity at its best is about love, love thy neighbor as thyself. Judaism suggests observance, observe the Sabbath and the commandments. Islam proclaims submission to always submit to the will of Allah. Of course, there is a need to express Unitarian Universalism in the way of the scholar, but also in the language of the lunchroom. And he suggests that that language should be gratitude. Gingrich shares this story. Karl Barth, perhaps the greatest Protestant theologian of the 20th century, was once asked if he could sum up Christian doctrine in a single sentence. And he thought for a moment and then he said, Yes. And the sentence is this. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. 
Now, Bart would not have written his 14-volume dogmatics if he thought the lunchroom answer was adequate for adults and theologians, but he knew children, and most adults, don't read theology even though they need a theology. So how do we boil down our theology, history, and tradition into a lunchbox faith proclamation our children can embrace and recall? Gratitude. Gratitude is a powerful religious response to being alive, the appropriate reaction to the fact that we have had life breathed into us by a power we do not understand and can never control knowing that we are embraced by a love that knows no bounds, even when we have a hard time feeling it. Of course, this does not suggest that human life is without pain. We all suffer. Many live lives full of misery. An attitude of gratitude also does not mean we needlessly suffer or tolerate pain and misery that can be ended. We are called to seek and proclaim life's blessings, especially when they seem hardest to find. Indeed, suffering should not be courted, even when it needs to be endured. Think of Esau from today's time for all ages, the gratitude he proclaimed in seeing his brother again, despite all that Jacob had stolen from him. Gratitude asks that we walk through this life with grateful hearts, searching for our blessings and saying thank you for them. Consider this from the Gospel of Thomas. What is within you, if it is kept inside, will destroy you. What is within you, if it is brought out, will save you. This suggests that simply feeling gratitude is not enough. Thoughts only have validity when they are expressed. Feelings only become sacred when voiced. Gratitude is a speech act. If you have not said thankful, you're not yet grateful. That's why our parents told us to say thank you. Gratitude is also a sign of a faithful life. A life of faith contains all an obligation, as Gingrich teaches us. First, the discipline of gratitude points us to counting our blessings and being thankful for them. We feel all that we're alive, that we can breathe and move and be part of this sea of humanity and wonder. And when we feel this awe, it obligates us to proclaim thanks. We humbly say thank you, knowing our duty to nurture the world that nurtures us in return. Gratitude is not some lazy fatalism. It doesn't mean we're grateful for everything. It doesn't mean we accept everything. It doesn't mean we permit horrors to commit to continue because we've said thank you to life. Gratitude means we steadfastly apply our energies to understanding and improving the world so more can be grateful. Indeed, gratitude for the life, world, and relationships we have been gifted compels us to make the most out of what we've been gifted. 
for us, our communities, and the next seven generations. Gratitude is the soul's primal response to being alive. And gratitude also implies humility. We may have gifts others do not. Gifts we share. Some may seem more blessed than us, yet how can we know that the gifts or blessings that we see others possessing do not also contain great burdens attached to those gifts? Our obligation of gratitude for the gift of life also commands humility. We are called as well to receive gratitude when it is offered to us. For some, it's more difficult to hear the words thank you than to say them. But when someone recognizes that religious duty to gratitude, we must endeavor to hear and accept that thanks. Allowing others the chance to show their gratitude is one way we create beloved community. It is easy in the busyness of our culture to lose touch with things that are deep and vital. A demanding world often pushes us away from the grateful heart that heals us, that diminishes stress, that heals souls. We all have stories of times of which we were less grateful than we should have been. And allow me to share a story with you. Those who know me usually say that I am an optimistic, hopeful person who embraces life. But there was a time that I was severely tested, a time when I teetered on the edge of an abysmal despair. Some of you know that my wife is the minister of the Sterling Unitarian Universalist Church, Anya Samler-Michael. But I was married once before. It was not a good match. Ours was not a happy union, but I was determined to stick it out and not become another divorce statistic. And then one day, after marching in the victory parade for the Baltimore Stallions, who had just won the Grey Cup, the Canadian Football League Championship, I came home, walked in the front door, full of the thrill of victory, having touched the Grey Cup, and I was floored by a hammer of anguish as I realized my ex-wife had moved out, leaving me a five-word note. My faith in people and life and love was ruptured. I no longer walked the streets proud and with a grateful heart. Everything I looked at seemed to show me pain and deception. I had lost touch with the spirit that compels us to see life as a blessing. I began to isolate. For those of you who know me, that's really unusual, being such an extrovert. I stayed home and watched TV. I never watched TV. I discouraged my friends from visiting. I didn't answer the phone. I used to go straight home from work every day. I'd turn on the tube. I even smoked cigarettes for a while and moped until I fell asleep. I even stopped going to band practice, for God's sake. And a few months later, 
something strange and wonderful happened. My downstairs neighbors knocked on my door one December evening, and they begged me to drive them to see our friend's new band debuting at a place called Memory Lane, a bowling alley nightclub that could only exist in South Baltimore. (laughs) They prevailed upon me, and we went to Memory Lane. It's the true name of the place. I know it sounds metaphorical. And as we were there, uh, it began to snow. A huge snowstorm had blown in. And after the show, the The streets were covered with six inches of fresh snow and it was still coming down. The one mile drive back to my house seemed to take forever. And when we got home, they dragged me out of the car and we started to make snow angels right in the middle of the street. I can still see the street light sparkling through the snowflakes. Being dragged to make my own angels, again, true story, not a metaphor, was the most sincere, effective care and therapy anyone ever offered me. And I'm not sure what happened, but from that night on, I was restored. My love of life and self were renewed. I regained my attitude of gratitude, loving life and the people and events that populate it. And I realized that the power of the example my friends had shown me, that we must help one another in these times and create joy where none seems to live. And to this day, I'm so grateful for that night, for those friends, for that snow, for that city. Music, friendship, a sense of obligation to one's neighbors, a spirit opening to healing, these things were my salvation. What is yours? There was magic under that streetlight in southwest Baltimore that December evening that saved my life and in turn changes everyone and everything with whom I come in contact today. I was filled with a fresh sense of mission that nudged me towards ministry and yes, even to this pulpit this morning. I do not know what was the source of that power I don't think I could explain it or measure it or take a picture of it, but by God, I thank it each and every day. I pray everyone can feel that power and compose a way to walk the world with a grateful heart. It's the aim of this church and all our churches to help people find the grateful heart within themselves. We all have stories of being on the brink of destruction or despair. Some of us may be approaching it right now. What saves us is choosing to live, keeping our eyes and hearts open, struggling to say yes to life's hope and potential despite all evidence to the contrary, saying Come on in when someone knocks on the door to help, saying yes when they lead us by the hand into the snow to make our own angels. Our power lies in moving ourselves into that place where we can cultivate a grateful heart, counting our blessings, sharing them, and living into the awareness of life's sacred blessings. The response of one 
who hears the joy of his or her soul, cultivated a grateful heart, is to praise, to say thank you, thank you. If you have yet to say thankful, thank you, you're not yet thankful. So many folks misunderstand praise, especially in churches. They think we're praising something supernatural or some theology. But praise simply means we allow our gratitude for life to be expressed as thank you. Saying thanks for the life we have is a fundamental spiritual discipline. So I ask you to try something. For the next week, each day when you awake, say, the sun will not rise or set without my notice. I am blessed to be here. Thank you. Repeat this with me. The sun will not rise or set without my notice. I am blessed to be here. Thank you. Now beware, such an attitude of gratitude may make you feel all warm and loving and it may enlarge your heart in any event when you do this with conviction. I promise you, you will be transformed.